You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up, China abandons some of its strictest COVID measures. We'll ask if the country's great unlocking is now underway. Also ahead on today's programme, the Ukrainian MP Oleksiy Goncharenko tells us what Kiev wants from US lawmakers. If we would receive more weaponry now, we would finish the war quickly. Investment of the United States to Ukrainian army is probably one of the best investments in U.S. history. Plus the day's business news and then Monocle's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi will be here to round up the week's big stories. What have you got for us, Natalie? Hi, Marcus. I'm here to talk about the Fashion Awards that just took place at the Royal Albert Hall in London, about new books that are being published, uh, looking at the fashion house Chloe and all the different trips that fashion houses have been taking around the world in the lead up to Christmas. All that and more right here on The Briefing. So welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Now is China's great unlocking getting underway. People in the capital of Beijing have been allowed to enter parks, supermarkets, offices and airports without showing proof of a negative COVID test. Restrictions have also been loosened in dozens of other cities. It follows the largest protests in China since President Xi Jinping came to power a decade ago. I'm joined now by the the founder of China Dialogue, Isabel Hilton. Isabel, welcome to the programme. How big of a shift is now taking place in China? Well, Marcus, it's it's a quiet 90-degree turn, really. Uh, I mean, we, we had last week, we had insistence that zero COVID was the correct policy. And and this week, without it being uh, officially reversed, we've seen a steady kind of removal of the restrictions that made that actually underpin zero COVID. So the mass testing, the compulsory lockdowns and the constant checking of the app uh, for access to everything from restaurants to to public transport. These are all being quietly dismantled. Um, We've seen also the publication of articles which announced the discovery by Chinese scientists, I don't know where they've been all this time, that Omicron isn't as serious as earlier uh, versions of the virus. And that, you know, I think we're looking at a process of quietly trying to declare victory while reversing a policy. It's not without its risk. But that does seem to be what's underway. What do you think has been happening behind the scenes in Beijing up until now? Well, I think they were really alarmed by the events of of, uh, of the weekend um, before last. The one, you know, it, I think one of the difficulties of authoritarian regimes is that their feedback uh, loops are pretty attenuated because nobody wants to give bad news to the boss. So, so when mass discontent uh, uh, erupts, as it did um, over that weekend, it comes as a shock and a surprise. And you could see that the police were nonplussed for the first two days. They just didn't know what to do. And I think that it really came as a surprise to the leadership that whilst they had been 
listening to their own propaganda about how wise and well-beloved the government and the party were, the reality was very different, and, and this is their response. Do you think the authorities had any other options faced with exceptional protests across the country? Well, they could have. Um, I mean, there has been a certain amount of triage. They're not keeping and they're not treating everybody the same. So the householders who, who were being you know, locked in their houses and apartments and compounds, they had the option of negotiating with them because those are the urban middle classes and you don't really want to alienate them en masse. Then there were the street protests, which they have pretty much closed down by by just security action. And then there was the question of the leaders and the students. Now, the students have largely been sent home. The leaders are being picked off one by one by digital identification. So you can see that there's a kind of, you know, there's a range of responses from, from the government. Had they chosen just to hang tough? then they would have had to deal with all of those uh, sectors. And the more people were able to protest together, the more courage they would find and the more they would direct their rage against the party. So the decision that they took was to was to calm it down, make concessions and pick off the ringleaders. How do you think this loosening of, of rules does in the bigger picture? What does it mean for China's zero-COVID policy? Well, the difficulty is, of course, that the risks haven't gone away. And the risks are that you have a, a still under an, or non-vaccinated elderly population, which is highly vulnerable because Omicron is, is you know, relatively mild, if, partly if you have natural immunity from having had uh, COVID, um, plus if you have an mRNA up-to-date vaccination. That is not the case for China's population. They haven't had it because they've been, because of zero COVID, and they haven't had Uh, the vaccinations to the degree that they need to have to provide some kind of protection. There's quite a lot of vaccine skepticism too amongst China's elderly population. So the risk, of course, is that you will begin to see the kind of um, things that we saw at the beginning of this pandemic. So the the rapid overwhelming of of medical available medical services and and panic and distress in the population and death. And that is exactly what zero COVID was meant to avoid. So this is not a, uh, this, as I say, is not without risk for for the government. And how this continues will very much depend on what those numbers look like in three weeks or a month. Do you think the authorities will at the same time try to boost vaccinations and improve that rollout? They certainly want to boost vaccinations. They've 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 announced that um, they haven't actually made it compulsory, but it's quite a, you know they've got about 60 million um, elderly people who either are unvaccinated or haven't had the requisite fourth shot. So you know that that's a lot uh, to deal with in a, in a relatively short time, and it's going to be a race against the the virus really whether they can get that done. As far as mRNA vaccines, they still haven't licensed. There have been various projects in China to produce their own. They haven't licensed an imported one, and they still have not licensed the domestic one. We may see that change again if things are, are, you know, going that way. If we are on a real opening up, we may well see China licensing an mRNA vaccine in the hope that that 
makes a difference. It was said that one of the reasons why why so many people protested was that they were watching, for example, the Qatar World Cup, realizing what's happening outside of the borders of of China. How long do you think that country can continue with its COVID zero with its zero COVID policy? Surely, at some point, something will need to change drastically. Well, I think we are already seeing a, a, a substantial change. Uh, we've also seen actually far more Chinese officials um, going abroad, um, including Xi Jinping. But there have been several, you know, mid-level, senior-level officials visiting Europe, visiting the UK. Now that had completely stopped for two years. People couldn't get couldn't get permission to go abroad, and if they if they went back, they they had massive quarantine restrictions. So we are quietly beginning to see these these restrictions being loosened, and they are quite keen for foreign investors to take an interest in China again. So they're quite keen that foreign businessmen uh, find it easier to travel. So, you know, as I say, it hasn't been declared, but zero COVID is is shrinking. And and how far it shrinks will, as I say, depend very much on what happens on the ground with the pandemic. And how quickly the country will open up for real. Does that also depend on what's happening next with COVID? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, if you get a surge, particularly if you get a surge in, you know, major cities like Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, which is quite likely, then I think we will see things shutting down again. Because essentially, you know, one of the narratives, one of the key narratives that uh, that the government has deployed is that this is all, you know, comes all this trouble comes from abroad. So that justified um, locking down the country as well as locking down um, cities and 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 housing compounds. So if they do get a surge, I think they I think we will see again that it becomes very difficult to get to China and very difficult for Chinese to travel, because they will also be worried about bringing in you know different variants and and um, you know exposing exposing the population to risks which they're not covered for. Thanks for joining us today, Isabel. That was Isabel Hilton, the founder of China Dialogue. It's 12.10 here in London. Now here is Monocle 24's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has announced a series of emergency shutdowns in a bid to stabilize the country's power grid. The move follows fresh Russian missile attacks and means that many regions will be without electricity in the coming days. Indonesia's government has passed a new criminal code that prohibits sex outside marriage and cohabitation. Critics say the legislation, which applies to Indonesians and foreigners, will undermine civil liberties in the Southeast Asian nation. And today marks a hundred years since the creation of the Irish Free State. Northern Ireland had the option of joining the newly created state in 1922, but chose not to do so. However, calls for a united Ireland have grown considerably in recent years. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks very much, Emma. Now, with the war in Ukraine entering a potentially decisive stage, the country's diplomats and legislators are busy appealing for continued international support. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jemak has been speaking to the Ukrainian MP Oleksiy Goncharenko, who represents the port city of Odessa. They caught up at Ukraine House in the US capital. I am invited by Helsinki Commission of U.S. Congress for hearing also to Alec, it's an American legislator's exchange council, to speak there. 
and also for the Conference of International Democratic Union, so all together. But also, for sure, I try to use this possibility to meet with my colleagues, uh, congressmen and senators from U.S. Congress, U.S. officials, think tanks, in order to ask for more support for Ukraine. And if we would receive more weaponry now, we would finish the war quickly. That is like message. And the investment of the United States to Ukrainian army is probably one of the best investments in U.S. history because we received near 3% of uh, American military budget and with this we destroyed 50% of Russian military capacity, the second biggest American rival after China. What is your biggest message right now in this moment when you, when you talk about support that Ukraine needs? Give us more weaponry and we will finish the job. We will win this war, the war of the whole free world, the war for our common values, which we all share. But for this we need this support with weaponry. We are very thankful for everything we already received. And we are extremely thankful to people of the United States, to U.S. administration, Congress, for all support we are receiving. But if we will receive more now, we will finish everything much quicker and we will save very many lives, a lot of human lives. Because now in Ukraine is real humanitarian catastrophe. We would not receive air defense, patriots, these systems. In this case, millions of Ukrainians would suffer through this winter. When I'm here, my family, my wife and two of my kids are in Odessa. They are without electricity already several days and also problems with water. And like these millions of Ukrainians live today. That is something unacceptable. This is a war crime of Russia. This is just a terrorism against us and against just ordinary civilian people, against women and children. So I'm sure that it could be stopped and it should be stopped. What is your sense since you've been here as well of how that message is getting through, what the level of U.S. support is like at the moment, many months after the invasion began? Is it still as robust as it was in your opinion? Yeah, I see a lot of support. Also, I see that there are questions and we need to explain to people why uh, American taxpayers should send their money somewhere overseas. And they have all the right to know really why, but as I told you, the best investment. Also, it's about economy. Putin tries to destroy Europe. Millions of jobs in the United States are connected to Europe. So Europe is the biggest export market for United States. It means for everybody in the country. So from all points of view, starting from moral and principles, continuing geopolitics and military and economical reasons, it's the best thing which can be done is to support Ukraine and to help us to win this war as soon as possible. I see this uh, support, but also I know that we need to answer the questions and I'm very thankful to you that you are covering what's going on in Ukraine and that you're asking and that is very important for us to inform American people what's going on. And just talk to me at the end a little bit about where we are speaking from, from Ukraine House here in Washington, D.C. How important is, is a place like this? It's extremely important. This is like, a, you know, there is an Ukrainian embassy here. And probably you can say that this is like a head of our presentation in the United States. But the heart, Ukrainian heart, is really here. In Ukrainian House, our culture, our soul, and it's extremely touching that even during the wartime we opened today the monument to Grigory Skovoroda who is one of the best philosophers, uh, thinkers of Europe for 18th century 
and he's Ukrainian, he was Ukrainian and he was absolutely great. And that is very touching, this monument, made by the way by American artist, and that it will be here as a sign of our friendship, as a sign, by the way, Ukrainian culture is an important part of American culture because millions of Ukrainians live here some of them for decades, some of them for centuries already, more. Some of them just several years, but all of them coming here, they bring in their culture and they enriching this common American culture, US culture. So I think that is very great that such house exists and I want to welcome everybody to come to see the monument and to come and to see Ukrainians and to appreciate our soul and our love to this great country, the United States of America. Is there a new recognition of Ukrainian culture, do you think, in the last year? Is that perhaps one silver lining, I suppose, of everything? Yeah, I think that especially after February 24, hundreds of millions of people throughout the whole planet opened Ukraine for themselves. Because many, let us be frank, many didn't know before where is Ukraine, Many thought that it is some part of Russia or something between Russia and Poland on something in Eastern Europe. And now Ukrainians showed their bravery. Ukrainians fight like so bravely and the whole world uh, think now see that this nation exists, that we have this identity, that we are ready to die for it. But we don't want to die, we want to live and to enrich the world with our culture and to live as, as a free nation in free world and we deserve it. And with us, the free world will be better and stronger. That was the Ukrainian MP Oleksiy Goncharenko in conversation with Monocle's Chris Chemek in Washington, D.C. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. It is 2018 in Hong Kong, 12.18 here in London and 7.18 a.m. in New York City. You are back with a briefing on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. Let's get the latest business news now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Ewan, welcome to the program again. So when we started this program, we talked about the reopening of China. And this is a big business story as well. What can you tell us? Marcus, yes, as you've been reporting from uh, today, Beijing will no longer require negative COVID tests uh, for many uh, ordinary things like visiting the supermarket and entering a range of public venues. still fair to say that uh, COVID restrictions are incredibly tough across much of China, but the direction of travel 
is very much uh, certain now. And the direction of travel and markets, well, as you can imagine, that has been upwards. China's tech stocks in Hong Kong surged as much as 9% for a fifth day of gains. And the yuan breached uh, the seven per dollar level. So Chinese assets are really uh, reacting favorably to a final end or a final uh, start of the end of some of these COVID restrictions uh, in China, which have really roiled the economy, as you can imagine, over the past uh, three years or so. Interesting to see what this means for global growth. We're expecting a pretty poor year of economic output uh, growth next year. Uh, the world economy will see its worst, uh, one of its worst years in three decades. This is a new forecast from Bloomberg Economics. They say if you exclude the crisis years of 2009 and COVID 2020, uh, next year will be the worst year for economic growth globally since 1993. Uh, Bloomberg Economics reckons that the global economy will grow by just 2.4% next year. That's down from 3.2% this year. But it looks like China will help that picture somewhat, but the global growth will certainly be pretty slow across much of the rest of the world. Mm, I wonder if you have any better news when it comes to predictions or forecasts on the global aviation industry. Yeah, this is some uh, data, a new forecast from the International Air Transport Association. The airline industry is set to achieve its first post-pandemic profit next year. Uh, The industry collectively will make about $5 billion in net profit next year. That is still less than a fifth of what it was making back in 2019. But it is the first year that the industry has managed to eke out uh, a surplus. Now, that uh, is a lot of this to do with uh, travel rebound in the US. There will be something of a pickup in China. But of course, China and Asia is still really the weak spot uh, for a lot of airlines. Europe and the Middle East will eke out small gains. But Asia will probably lose about $6 billion across the continent. A lot of that is because China has still not really opened up to international travel. And a lot of Chinese uh, are not taking uh, planes. The IATA uh, Director General, Willie Walsh, says the airline profitability is razor thin. He says next year's net income will equate to the equivalent of about $1.11 per passenger on average. That is less than the price of a cup of airport coffee, he says. Well, much less than the price of airport coffee uh, the last time I flew. Thank you very much for this update. That was Bloomberg's UN Pots, and you are with The Briefing. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. And finally, on today's programme, we are going to get a roundup of fashion news with our fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Natalie, good afternoon to you. Something that's making headlines here in London is, is Fashion Awards. They took place last night. Yes, it's a big industry gathering, both for the London fashion community, but also um, a lot of designers coming from all over the world and it closes of the year. Uh, so a lot of headlines today following the ceremony with uh, Valentino's Pierpaolo Piccioli getting the biggest prize, winning designer of the year, which was a really much deserved award for all the work that he's been doing. And it's it's a big year for the house. Valentino Garavani himself is turning. 90 and there is a lot of attention around its history and its heritage but also how Pierpaolo has managed to keep it modern and um, at the top of consumers' minds, both uh, young and old. 
Uh, and at the same time, there was uh, a shift in, in really recognizing not just the brands that are trendy and uh, cool, but uh, the brands that are championing responsible design as well. So we had Patagonia that won the Outstanding Achievement Award and a series of designers, some young London designers like Priya Lualia and some more established names like Gabriela Hurst, who were recognized as leaders of change for the uh, sustainability work that they are doing and how much they're pushing for responsible design and changing the way we see consumption and uh, um, raising the industry's manufacturing standards as well. What kind of credentials are we talking about all these brands that were named and awarded last night for their work with sustainability? What kind of things have they actually done? So I actually spoke to Gabriela Hurst uh, just before the ceremony and uh, she was speaking about when she just started, she started using dead stock materials, which is materials that were pre-used or old. And she got almost into trouble for using dead stock. Why? In, it, it's not considered luxury and she was using it on a luxury catwalk and, and selling those clothes on a premium. But now everyone is using dead stocks. She was also one of the first to change her packaging from plastic to this uh, biodegradable material. So it's changes like this, but also working with NGOs and all, all around the world and uh, artisans and uh, really championing ethical manufacturing. So that those are some of the of the changes that they have been spearheading. It's a busy season for fashion industry. We're also seeing that brands are doing various marketing efforts around the world trying to get some attention, it seems. Exactly. I think this is the time that brands really take the opportunity to travel to a lot of the markets that they're interested in, but also to launch collaborations and campaigns that will get people shopping ahead of Christmas. So uh, we had Art Basel in Miami. So a lot of brands from Audemars Piguet, the watch brand, to Prada, to Saint Laurent hosted events there. Saint Laurent um, had this big exhibition on a, on a beach front gallery celebrating the re-edition of Madonna's sex book uh, and uh, we also are seeing a lot of destinations shows. Dior just had a big weekend event in Cairo presenting a collection in, in the desert in front of the pyramids. Um, Chanel is this week traveling to Senegal to host uh, a show and Celine is going to be in Los Angeles and, and these are big marketing exercises for the brands and also an opportunity to go into new markets. Is this a new thing or is this something that brands are keen to take advantage of now that people can finally travel? It's not a new thing. Um, these shows were traditionally called cruise shows and th that's what uh, brands uh, back in the day were designing these capsule collections for rich people that were going on cruises for winter and around Christmas time. And it's sort of come back. They are more commercial collections, bigger ones, and um, have always have turned into this big marketing opportunities, but now that we are able to travel again, uh, they are putting extra effort and in inviting people from all over the world, from celebrities to VIP clients to come together and celebrate. They sound like quite good trips. I wouldn't mind going to Cairo or Dakar, for example. Me to see either. <laughs> but here we are. In the industry, but we are here in Studio One uh, at Midori House. Just finally, you've been reading some books and there's one that deserves attention. 
Yes, uh, Chloe, the Parisian fashion house, has just launched a new book uh, that looks at its history. And it's it's really interesting. It does deserve attention, I think, because Chloe is one of those brands that doesn't get as much credit as it deserves. It was founded by this woman called Gabi Aguillon. Uh, she's originally uh, Greek and Egyptian, but she moved to Paris when she was really young and uh, founded this uh, this brand uh, and really pushed um, ready to wear. I think Yves Saint Laurent gets a lot of the credit for uh, the move of, of the fashion industry from just made to order to ready to wear. But she was also one of the pioneers in the 50s and 60s. And uh, she also created really loose, more free silhouettes for women, brought humor into fashion. And uh, she was a working woman, which was really a revolution at the time. So uh, the book is a chance to give her the credit she deserves and also looks at a lot of the other great creative directors that followed in her footsteps, which include uh, Stella McCartney, Phoebe Philo, and most recently, Gabriella Hurst, who in two years has brought on her sustainability expertise and uh, made Chloe the first uh, luxury fashion house owned by a big conglomerate, Richemont, um, become a B Corp certified uh, brand. That's a great recommendation maybe for, for a Christmas gift to someone even. Natalie, thank you very much for joining us today. That was Monaco's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. And talking about fashion and Christmas presents, many of Monaco's favourite brands will be present at our Christmas market this weekend. Midori House will be transformed into a winter wonderland. We'll have a reindeer or reindeer even there. And Santa will be flying here all the way from Rovaniemi in Finland. It's a great place for doing some Christmas shopping and for catching up with Monaco staff members, including myself. The market will be open on Saturday and Sunday between 10am and 6pm. See you there. And that's all for for today's edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow, but we'll have much more news and analysis on today's edition of the Monocle Daily, which airs at 1800 London time. That's at 10am in San Francisco. Andrew Miller will be hosting the programme once again. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>